This message by Sam Shin, entitled "The New Heaven and the New Earth, Part Two," was recorded at Wellspring Church on July twenty-eighth, twenty nineteen. The text for this message is Romans chapter eight, verses nineteen through twenty-two. This morning's scripture reading comes from Romans chapter eight, verses nineteen through twenty-two. Hear now the word of the Lord. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of Him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption, and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. So far, the reading of God's word. You may be seated. If you have your Bible, if you wouldn't mind continuing、um, to keep your finger there, because I'm gonna actually talk mostly from the whole passage of verses 18 through 25. So we'll we'll I'll read that a little bit later. Last week. We spoke of the new heaven and the new earth from the perspective of Revelation chapter twenty-one and twenty-two, and John there writes about the beauty of what is to come. It's hard to describe well that beauty because it is truly indescribable. So hopefully you walk away with at least a semblance of this is what I have to look forward to, and it is so astounding that. Words are not going to do it justice, but this week it's a, sort of a, a backwards look to appreciate the new heavens and the new earth by focusing on our current heaven and earth, and to recognize that this earth that we live in is still undergoing a lot of what Paul describes as groanings, and there will be a day. Where this earth and all that it has and holds will be set free, and so to understand what that freedom looks like, we need to go back and again explore what this groaning and what frailty we still live in today, and that's to really recognize that creation will be set free, fully, wholly, but right now it's under bondage. What does that mean? What is Paul talking about? And so, when we look at this passage, we see that Paul writes about the fact that this world and this creation is undergoing decay and corruption and frailty, and there's only one who can set this creation free from all of the strife and all of the struggle.、And、we know, according to the Bible, that one is Jesus Christ. He's the renewer. He's the person that we have sung much about today, about the restorer of all things, and to understand why this creation is undergoing such decay and groaning, we're going to again go back to Genesis and then move forward again to Romans. If we go back to Genesis chapter one, where creation is the key theme of Genesis chapter one, we know that God made everything good. And very good, as he describes it. That that repetition of that word describing the creation aspect of it all, and how God has made every part of his his creation to be good and very good, orderly, without corruption, without death, without imperfection. And when we understand that, and then when suddenly something intervenes in the midst of that goodness to overturn that goodness. That's quite disturbing. I think some of us have at least an idea of this, especially if you have siblings, and if you can recall having your siblings younger or older, most of the time younger. When, for example, you have drawn、uh, this masterpiece when you're a young child, and you're working so hard to draw this masterpiece, and suddenly your younger brother comes along. With that devious smile and smirking, and comes along with his own crayon and just comes and rubs that masterpiece, and suddenly you say, "How dare you!" And you get so frustrated. I mean, all of us can appreciate what it means to have your own creation wrecked 
I remember one time my sister and I, we were engaged in a, a real lengthy battle of chess. And this is when we were younger. My brother is five years younger than me. And he was at the time a toddler. He comes along. We're just racking our brains, looking at each other deep in the, the bowels of chess, you might say. And we're concentrating. It was my move. And I was getting ready to checkmate. And suddenly my brother comes along and he takes the chessboard and he flips it over. I was so upset. I looked at him. I balled up my fist. And I did an uppercut right to his face. It ripped this part right here and it was bleeding. And he had to get stitches. And uh, I had my own punishment coming to me. I won't describe that. But, I mean, that's how I felt when my beautiful artwork of chess was destroyed suddenly. I mean, how much more do you think God would have felt to have his beauty, his splendor, his majesty, the, the beauty of creation that he had worked to provide for his people? And suddenly Adam and Eve comes along and just flips over the chessboard, you might say. Or, moving forward, how much more God rightly could have punished? Paul describes this this way in verse 20, for the creation was subjected to futility. That is to say that there is a decay to creation that would impact every aspect of creation. Nothing would be left untouched. So, the trees would be impacted, the animals, the weather. But also, as we've discovered throughout this series, is that our bodies are corrupted to decay. You know, of late, um, I've been, we, as a family, we've been playing a lot of sports together, almost every night, and uh, doing exercise together as a family. And sometimes unwillingly, but they, they come, we come together and do that. And the more I do this, Every night I walk away, my body just does not recover. It doesn't. And I know some of you can appreciate this, and some of you say, I could see why. You're just really out of shape. That's why. But of late, my elbows have been hurting, and they never get better. It seems like they're getting worse. That's called decay. <laughs> just like a cavity. It's called decay of your body. And as we age as we look at the world, as we look at the news, decay is all around us. Paul calls this, according to verse 22, he says, creation groans. Groaning happens when you look at a circumstance in your life and you see the trials and the suffering and sometimes it just seems so great, so large, that you can't overcome them. No matter the work that you do, the investment of time that you give, and so you groan, you sigh, and it's progressive in nature. It, it keeps on getting more difficult, and if we're not careful, it becomes more hopeless, more despairing. There is one way we know that humanity has not figured out how to make things better and not worse, and it is the, the desire or the pursuit of eradicating infectious diseases. And... Today, as we know, over time, technology improves, modern medicine improves, and technological advances in medical science improves, and yet we know of the horror stories of the bubonic plague or measles or smallpox during the Middle Ages, the Spanish influenza outbreak of the 1900s, and we think to ourselves and we hear those stories and you think, wow, I'm so glad I didn't live during that era. But today, just look at the news. There's flesh-eating bacteria. There's amoeba that is wiping out people. Not wiping out, we're killing one person here or there. It always seems as though that science is saying there's going to be a killer flu that comes along every flu season. How is it that technology advances, but science always seems to be a step behind? It's like the old gopher video game, you know, the hit that gopher and another one pops up. The biblical answer to this is not that, well, one day we're going to eradicate all infectious disease. The biblical answer is that 
as long as we live in this world, there will always be this disease, this decay. I was working on my message, either it was last week or a couple of weeks ago, I was literally typing a sermon on the new heavens and the new earth, and then my monitor just started going like this, and my desk was going like this, because some of you felt the earthquake about a 4.0 in Blackhawk in Danville. And I'm writing about the new heaven and the new earth and the decay of the old world. And suddenly my, my, you know, my desk is shaking and I realize this is the groaning that Paul is speaking about here. But maybe you're asking this question. Why groaning? Why, is, why does it have to be what Paul says in verse 22? For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And I think the answer to this lies in Genesis 3, as so often we see. But when speaking about creation and pains and childbirth, we have to go back to Genesis 3 because that's a clear indicator of the first childbirth, you might say, and the pains and creation. As a result of Adam and Eve's complete rejection of God, in accordance with Genesis 3, God tells Eve that there's going to be a consequence to Adam and Eve and your response, which is that they've decided they don't need God. They're going to do things their own way apart from Him. They don't need to trust Him. They don't need to depend on Him. That their way, their knowledge, their pursuits are far better than anything that God will provide. And He had provided everything for them. And so in Genesis chapter 3, verse 16, God says, here are the consequences to your decision of saying you don't need me. First, he tells Eve, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Adam, too, faced consequences as well. To Adam and his rejection of God, what's interesting is that the earth was cursed. It says, cursed is the ground because of you in pain. You shall eat of all the days of your life, thorns and thistles. It shall bring forth for you. Now, remember this and move forward back to Romans 8.22. And in a way, Paul is telling us that they and this world is experiencing the same consequence due to their rebellion against God. For Eve, she will have groanings and pains during childbirth. For Adam, he will experience the groanings and pains of the earth during its childbirth, in a sense. God gives them both groanings and pains. If you look at it, actually, the punishment is exactly the same. The curse is the same. Just different in the um, the object of the groanings and pains. But... This pain was there, and it's there with an intended purpose. Because the real question is, why does God curse the ground, the earth, when it wasn't the earth that actually rejected God? The earth continues to worship him. The psalmist calls out that the trees and the branches cry out and wave their branches to God in worship to him. So clearly the earth did not sin against God. But yet, it's the earth that suffers. Because what God wants Eve to know and Adam to know. Eve being not just Eve, but everyone who would be born of Eve, which is all of us. And for Adam and all of his work and labor, but all that they do in this world, that the whole earth is going to remember this as well. That that pain is a result of their rejection of God. And so the groanings and the pains of this world and all of the consequences that come with it is a regular parable, a metaphor, a sign, a reminder to everyone who lives that rejection of God has severe, terrible consequences. And until we see that, that the suffering of this world that we face is a result of not everyone else's sin, but in actuality of mine. It's so easy to think of tragedies and disasters and diseases as God's arbitrary actions against humanity. That's how so often people respond. They think God is playing games 
with his creation. And so when difficulties come, when we hear of a school shooting, when perhaps an ocean liner sinks, a plane crashes, we hear of a loved one who is given the dreaded diagnosis of cancer, maybe a tsunami comes and wipes out the world or part of it or a city. And the first thought or inclination is to say, God, why would you do that? You're not good. You're not faithful. You're not just. But what we see in Romans 8 is that if we understand who God is, we need to recognize that it is due to the rejection of God himself because there was a time and there will be a time one day, but there was also a time before when Adam and Eve and people trusted God completely without any rejection of him. And so there were no earthquakes. There were no cancers. There was no death, no suffering. As well, we've been exploring together that in the future there will be no earthquakes, cancers, suffering, and death. But until that time, in that in-between period, there is all of that. And there is that because it shows us of our rejection of God and our desperate need of Him. He sustains us. He cares for us. Without Him, all of us in a moment would be gone, would be lost in every way, spiritually and physically. And there is not any amount of technological advance that could cure that. John Piper, Pastor John Piper, he comments, God disordered the natural world because of the disorder of the moral and spiritual world. That is because of sin. In our present fallen condition, with our hearts so blinded to the exceeding wickedness of sin, we cannot see or feel how repugnant sin is. Hardly anyone in the world feels the abhorrent evil that our sin is. Almost no one is incensed or nauseated at the way they belittle the glory of God. But let their bodies be touched with pain, and God is called to give an account of himself. We are not upset at the way we injure his glory, We, but let him injure our little pinky finger? And all our moral outrage is aroused, which shows how self-exalting and God-dethroning we are. We need to stop and think about that for a moment. When we experience any strife, struggle, hardship, big ways and little ways, how easy it is, our first inclination is to grumble and complain. But that grumbling and complaining isn't just out in the air. It's against God ultimately. It's a lack of trust and dependence on him. It is the same heart of Adam and Eve. And it is that heart that is God dethroning, self-exalting. The brokenness of our world should cause us to cry out to him, to recognize our need for him to call out to Him and recognize that we depend on Him for everything. But we are self-exalting, tragically, every day. God is not significant to us, not really. Not when He's one of 1,000 things we do in the week. But as John Piper notes, when pain hits, when tragedy strikes, when 9-11s, the 9-11s of the worlds come, or when a 9.0 on the Richter scale comes and hits the Bay Area, Suddenly, people put God at the center in one of two ways. We either say, how dare you, God? We remember God then. We raise our fist at him and we shout out him and say, God, you're not just, you're not good. Or we turn to him. We repent. We cry out to him. God is at the center during times of trial and sorrows. That's what groaning does. The groanings and sorrows and pains and sufferings show us we need God. And it also shows us that we're not meant for this world. It is a good thing when our bodies break down and the first inclination is rather than raising our fist at him, saying, God, this is a reminder that this body, this world, the way that it is now, it's not how we're going to be forever. And you can't think that way unless you have a far bigger picture of what is to come. 
until you have the new heaven and the new earth, and that is your ultimate, final, eternal destiny, and it is, again, we're going to go deeper into practically what that means and why you want to live for that place. Only then can all the brokenness and the decay and the corruption be looked upon in a way in which it doesn't swamp over you, but instead it points you to peace. It gives you a peace that truly passes, transcends understanding. Do you know what is critical in understanding Romans 8.22 is that these are pains before childbirth. It's very important to recognize that the curse is pains during childbirth. But in accordance with Romans 8.22, these are blessings. You would think that pains during childbirth would not be a good thing. Because I know for many of you, for most of you women who who have had a, a baby, some of you have had really miserable experiences during those first few months of being pregnant. And you've faced this. And during those times, and I've heard some horror stories of being um, brought into the hospital, having IV drips, vomiting every day, nonstop feeling nauseated. Yeah, admittedly, it makes me feel a lot better to be a man in those instances. It's hard. It's very difficult for you, and I applaud all of you who have gone through that. But you know what that pain is? That pain shows there's a healthy baby, Lord willing, inside your womb. And that nausea, that tiredness, even that hospitalization, that shows that that miserable place to be in, including the misery perhaps of labor, and I know some of you have had difficult labors, and when that happens, the end result, Lord willing, is that a baby's born, they place them on, on top of you, and you take a look at that child, and suddenly all those pains go away. Paul uses this same metaphor to describe the pains and the sorrows and the groanings of this earth and us. Because there's going to be, be a day when all things are made new, and when we are resurrected to live as we were created to be forever, when there are no more pains, that day will come. But we have to understand that what we face today, here and now, the difficulties and trials of today, point us to a future. To a future day where no more sorrows, no more sadness, sufferings, and all of this that we experience today, when you open the news and you look and you read all the terrible events, or perhaps there will be a day where maybe a, a, a drastic earthquake will impact the Bay Area and we might come together, barely many of us injured, perhaps dead. And will we say God is still good? If we understand Romans 8, you can actually say God is still good. He is good. He is faithful. He is righteous. If you believe this to be true, that we are not meant for this world. The environmental, many environmentalists push for a renewed earth through con conservation. And trust me, I love the environment. I am a, I love hiking. If you know me, I love hiking. And I love exploring the beauty of God's creation. And we are to be stewards of the environment. But no amount of environmentalism is ever going to renew the earth the way that only God can. Verse 21 says that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption. Only God can set free this earth. And what we see today, it just will not compare. Go to the most beautiful places of this world and it still will pale in comparison to the new heaven and to the new earth. And so as much as scientists work on a cure for cancer, only God will bring freedom from all disease. There are groanings. You know, uh, I was reading about that earthquake 
you know, the one that hit in Danville. And on the USGS website, there's an early earthquake warning system, and it didn't pick up that earthquake coming. And I just thought, that's how it is. There's an early earthquake warning system that doesn't warn anyone about an earthquake. There will never be a way to get rid of earthquakes or tsunamis or hurricanes or tornadoes or cancer, heart disease. Not fully, because when one goes away, another one crops up. But there is only one true way, eternal way, that there is a promise that God will do for us in the new earth where there will be no earthquakes or tsunamis or hurricanes or tornadoes. We know that creation will be set free. But one thing we also know is that we are set free right now, here and now. And we know this because of verse 18 and as well as verses 23 to 25. So I'm going to read verse 18 and then also verses 23 to 25. First, verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. How does knowing that creation will be set free one day help us today? There are a number of different ways. First, it helps us through times of suffering. That's what verse 18 tells us. Paul here does not try to escape suffering. It is a part of the groaning of this world. He recognizes this to be a part of the reality of sin. The constant rejection of God that is ongoing and everyone is guilty of it. There's not a person alive in this world who does not in some way throughout their day, throughout their week, regularly try to gain independence from God. And so Paul's not saying here, you should run from this world. That we should go and hide in the mountains and try to create a commune of godly people. You know what happens when a, a group of godly people run and create a commune in the mountains to try to find this holy village where only God's people exist? What happens is that, that those holy people become very unholy. We always come up with a new way to turn against God and rebel against Him. So Paul isn't saying run away from the world, and he's not saying you should distract your mind from it and escape from it. You can't. Even if, when I would have sometimes sorrows, I would, or difficulties, and I only did this a few times where I would go watch a movie by myself in the movie theater. And I don't know if any of you ever do that. I don't think it's a bad thing in and of itself. But that's not going to help you. Medication isn't going to help you. And we can try all these different things. And don't get me wrong, I'm not advocating masochism. There is a place for treatments, medically, emotionally. There's a place for counseling and therapies. There's a place for rest and entertainment. But these things will never take away your sorrows. Because it's a part of the consequence of the world we live in. They cannot set you free. Any of those things. And so if you think, if I could just get into that best friend group at school, and so I'm maybe talking to the teenagers and college students and think, if I could only find friends, if I get the job of my choice, finally meet a special someone, if I have a child, after trying so hard, we can't have children. Suddenly, if I only have a child, there is a mistake there. And it's the idea that having something outside of me, if I gain it, I will be free from suffering. Paul tells us in verse 18, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing. So Paul doesn't try to escape the suffering. Instead, he recognizes that this is the reality of our world. We don't run from it and we don't embrace it either, but rather... We run to God, who suffered on the cross, who saved us for a day when there will be no more suffering again. That's the answer to suffering, is not to run from it, not to try to embrace it, but to run to God and to realize that there is a day where no more suffering is to come.
Only then, when you experience hardship and sorrows and sufferings, will it not overwhelm you and overcome you. Only a few verses later, in Romans 8.37, he says, We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. We are more than conquerors. A conqueror in an army, they get the city, but they have to figure it all out after. It's sort of like after the United States won the war in Iraq, that was the easy part. That was hard, but it was easy. You know what was the harder part? Nation building. Trying to restore Iraq. And it's still, they're trying to do it. And it's, it's not going to happen so easily. That's what Paul's saying is that you can fight a battle and win. But then what happens at the next battle that comes? And the next one. The only way this is a true promise is, is at the end of the road, there's no more suffering. And the whole point of Romans 8 is to point us to a new reality. That one day there is a new heaven and a new earth where no more tears, no more sorrows, no more loneliness, no more despair. We try so hard to get rid of the suffering, a suffering we'll never get rid of fully. And any other measure other than running to Christ and recognizing that His suffering was born for you, and that every time we go through trial, we look to him, the author and perfecter of our faith, as Hebrews tells us. Only then can we actually experience peace in the midst of suffering, not away from it. Not only that, a future creation set free points us to a future glory. That's another part of verse 18. The suffering, while it is hard, cannot compare to the new heaven and the new earth. Jesus says in as one of the Beatitudes in Matthew 5.5, 5, Blessed is the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. He is not saying meek is weak. He's saying your suffering... Um, he's not saying your suffering isn't real or isn't grievous. It's hard. And I don't want us to sort of put, paint this beautiful picture of suffering. It's not. If you've ever seen someone even die, it's never pretty. It's never glorious. It's horrible. It is a terrible thing. All suffering is bad in and of itself. But as Isaiah reminds us, beauty can truly come from ashes. At 28 years old, John Piper received a call that his mother was killed in a car accident on a, on a trip to Israel, a tourist trip to Israel, killed in a car accident. And when he received that phone call, he went to his room and cried for two hours and then prayed this prayer to the Lord. Thank you that I had her for 28 years. Thank you that she was a Christian. Thank you that she didn't suffer. Lord, thank you that my dad is alive. I don't know if he'll be alive when I get there, because he was also in that car accident. But thank you for what a great mom she was. You've been so good to me. You should weep and mourn when you lose someone you love. And again, I'm not here to say you should, when you suffer, you should put on a smile on your face and everything should be okay. No, quite the contrary. You should grieve and mourn. But as Paul says in, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, we grieve as those who have hope. If the new heaven and the new earth is true, we're living for that day, then we grieve as those who have hope. We grieve, but we grieve because there's a future glory to live for. And that impacts the way we live right now. Thirdly, it points us to the hope of our salvation. Look at verse 24. For in this hope, we were saved. For in this hope, we were saved. Remember the problem of the garden. Adam and Eve and everyone since came to believe that they didn't need God at all. It's what we struggle with every day of our lives. We don't need him. We can do it on our own. We can live this life apart from him. And they didn't find him significant or worthy of worship. Their fears far outweighed any fear of God. So they were more afraid of heights, more afraid that someone was going to 
if you're singing at church on Sunday, you don't want to sing because I don't want anyone to hear my voice because it doesn't sound good. We're more concerned about what other people think of me than of what God thinks of me. And that's part of the brokenness of this world. We don't find him significant enough, worthy enough to be worshipped. We don't fear him at all. We don't love him. And so God curses the earth to show the world we do need him. Everything is broken without him. And this physical world, again, is that metaphor for our rebellion and sin. When we open the news, I hope the first thing we think of is not, oh, those are really bad people. Or only if the government was better. Or only if we had the right person in power. But rather, if we could only turn to the idea of, we need him. I'm a part of why this world is so broken like this. You know, I know the team came back from Zimbabwe. I've been, you know, I've been to Africa a number of times. They have, and they came back. A number of them had little infections on their legs or were sick. Why does that happen on a mission trip? You pray so hard and you say, see, this is the way that we, we naturally think. Pray hard, going on a, a godly mission to worship Christ. And on that trip, everything should be okay. No one gets sick. The team is so happy with each other. There's no interpersonal conflict. Everything should be okay. And if anything goes wrong, we say, but God, I prayed so hard. We had a really great purpose to this. Instead, it should be, Lord, that has a purpose to refine us and to show us more of yourself on this trip. And I'm not saying they didn't do that. I have, I battle that myself. It's our natural instinct to to feel as though the brokenness of our world and the struggles of this world is always, this is evil. And it is, but God uses all things for our good. As we see only a few verses later in Romans chapter 8, verse 28. In Jesus Christ, according to verse 24 and 25, for in this hope we were saved, now hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he sees, but if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. But prior to that, in verse 23, it says, and not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we eagerly wait for adoption as sons. We are with, we have this hope, and it's a hope of salvation. It's a hope of trusting Christ as sons and daughters of the living God. We do not respond to brokenness with more brokenness. If something evil or with suffering happens, if our natural instinct, which it is, is to respond with our brokenness, anger, frustration, anxiety, irritability, self-pity, despair, then we can actually sink far deeper. But God wants to give us freedom. And until we have a big view of our eternity and see then the hope of salvation, then everything we face now will overwhelm us. I have mentioned Johnny Erickson Tata many times. I'm going to put a picture of her on screen, but I wanted to show you her picture. If you've never seen her, she's always in a wheelchair, always broken. Physically broken. I don't think there's a person in this room who would say, I envy her. I wish I were her. You know, there are some people in this world where you might feel like, I wish I was that person. But not her. And she wrote a book on heaven. And when she speaks about heaven, I actually listen because I think, how does someone like her deal with the brokenness of this world and yet still have joy? persist, persevere, and what does she view of heaven? And this is what she writes. In a way, I wish I could take to heaven my old, tattered Everest and Jennings wheelchair. I would point to the empty seat and say, Lord, for decades I was paralyzed in this chair. But it showed me how paralyzed you must have felt to be nailed to your cross. My limitations taught me something about the limitations you endured when you laid aside your robes of state and put on the indignity of human flesh. 
At that point, with my strong and beautiful glorified body, I might sit in it, rub the armrests with my hands, look up at Jesus and added, the weaker I felt in this chair, the harder I leaned on you. And the harder I leaned, the more I discovered how strong you are. Thank you, Jesus, for learning obedience in your suffering. You gave me grace to learn obedience in mine. I hope you know this for yourself. Whatever you struggle with one day, it will be gone forever. Whatever you suffer one day, you will see that you are, you are not alone in that suffering. If you are in Christ, Jesus is carrying you. He is besides you. Your weakness reveals how lovely Christ is when he died on that cross. Your suffering, your sorrows, your despair, you can either let it overwhelm you and it downward spirals into the, the pit of despair, or you can look at that difficulty and say, Jesus, I understand why you gave your life for me. On the cross, in suffering. And every time I think of myself and what I go through, May I not sink to self-pity and despair, but may I instead look to you, the author and perfecter of my faith, who saves me, gave his life for me. That's what the new heaven and the new earth does. It reminds us of what we've been saved for, what it took, what it cost. And lastly, it helps us to love others when it is most difficult. Look at verse 25 again. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. The hope that resides in us because we are saved as sons and daughters. We, When you are in Christ, you become a child. And you long for your father to come and bring you home. There's a hope there. It's what Peter calls a living hope. But that hope also makes us patient. Patience is trust. Trusting in God's timing. Trusting in God's methods, trusting God's purposes, trusting in his timing, his methods, and his purpose. That's what patience is. And as the president of the impatient club, I stand here before you to say, I struggle with waiting on God's timing, his method, and his purpose in my life. Because I am just like my father Eve, I mean, uh, father Eve, <laughs> father Adam, <laughs> wrong, wrong statement there. Um, I am just like my father Adam. I always think my way is the best way. I know what is best for me and what is best for you and what is best for my wife, what is best for my children. I don't want to wait for God because he calls me to wait, to be patient. But that's all the more reason why Paul says, if we hope for what we do not see, that is the new heaven and the new earth for God to come, for Jesus to return again to bring me home, for that day, if we can just hope for that with patience, we'll experience such joy and delight and freedom. One significant... It's important to learn this, and the way you learn patience is... You have to be in the lives of people because those are the people. That's the area where your patience gets most tested by people. That's why the church has its value in the midst of brokenness, not when everyone is well. Spend time enough with people and you will really understand the testing of patience. Patience is hard because of the groaning. But Jesus was patient. And the way we know this to be true is there are scars on his hands and on his feet. Those scars on his hands and feet, as Johnny Erickson talks about, and Johnny Erickson Tata talks about, is that that reminds us of our, our weakness, our frailty, our need for him. And so quickly we want to give up on people. Once it's gone too much, we say, that's it, I'm done, I'm cutting them out of my lives. Imagine if Jesus held us to that same standard. Who amongst us, as the psalmist says, 
If the Lord should mark our iniquities, who could stand? Who amongst us could stand? We would, who could cast the first stone? We also need to be patient in our circumstances. How easily we get frustrated when things don't go our way. When we become frustrated and irritable, that just shows us that we don't really trust God. It's not about that other person's failure. It's about our heart of faith. We don't believe God to be true. We don't think his timing is good enough for us. We don't think his plans are real. And we don't think his purposes are right for me. And so situations overwhelm us. I want to just share one story and close with this, is that some of you actually told me you've heard the story. Uh, this past week, Sue and I, my wife and I, we went on a, a very unplanned trip. We drove to Wells, Nevada on um, Thursday night. We left at 5, and we got there 2 in the morning, just me and my wife. And uh, we had uh, drove, it was about a nine-hour drive, so round trip, about 18 hours in two days. So 18 hours, go to the, the booniest of boonie lands. And because my um, cousin-in-law, her, they had taken a, a cross-country trip from Toronto and were visiting different places around the United States. Actually, she was here this past week, this past Sunday, and she came. And then they went to Yosemite in their car, and then they were driving to Yellowstone. And as they drove to Yellowstone, their car broke down. And it happened to be literally in the middle of nowhere. No rental agencies, no... I mean, it's yeah, it was a very small town. And they called us. They weren't even asking for us to come pick them up or anything, but just telling us the situation. And my wife and I were praying about it, and we decided we got to go pick them up. So we started our drive 5, uh, 5 p.m. on Thursday, driving into Wells at 2 in the morning, packed up all their stuff, uh, put it into our car. So we got up at, I don't know, 7 and drove back home. And we were just, list I was listening to the st her story, my cousin-in-law's story of everything, what had happened. You know, their car, basically their oil was completely gone. And while that, a lot of people think, wait, they didn't check their oil. That's, that's so dumb. Like, why didn't you do that? You should check your oil on this. But actually it wasn't her fault on that particular car, a 2012 Subaru Forester. It had a recall and there was a class action lawsuit of all these people. The same thing happened with people who have that car. And she happened to be one of those people. And so that happened. As well as in Wells, Nevada, literally the middle of nowhere, on that weekend, there is a there was a car show that everyone in this like within a, like a 15, 20 mile radius, all the hotels are booked. So for that night and moving forward, there was no accommodation. And she was just telling us all this story, but throughout the whole time. Um, I mean, she has grown tremendously with the Lord. Uh, she's had a very, I would say, a challenging life with the Lord throughout her early years. And But throughout this time, she had been sharing, even while she was with us, she was just talking about Jesus constantly. And as she was telling us this story, she was saying how she would be walking along the side of the road and she'd just be praying and giving thanks to the Lord. Every Every part of her journey was constantly giving thanks to the Lord for the broken car. The fact that in the midst of the broken car, that things weren't worse. Or that as she was walking along, she'd be praying and suddenly someone would come up and say, hey, you know, can I help you? And she didn't even have a phone. Her phone broke. I mean, just every single thing that could go wrong went wrong. But throughout this time, her constant approach to the situation was God is good. God is faithful. He's using this. And I saw a peace that truly passeth understanding. Honestly, if it was me, I think, I don't know if I would have had that peace. Not because I, like I said, I'm the president of the impatient club. I really am. And you don't get that unless you're regularly thinking about him and thinking about a hope. There really, when I just heard her, I just heard constant peace. 
And I just thought, that's what it means to be a Christian. It doesn't have to be about when things are that bad. But actually, it's when the littlest of things happen. When someone, when a child takes their hand and suddenly the glass falls to the floor and milk is everywhere. What's your first instinct? Come on! What's wrong with you? Have a little, you know, we get so frustrated, so easily irritated because we don't see God for who he is. The Lord is good. He is kind. He is faithful. This world has groanings. But he's never going to leave you. He hasn't. The scars on his hands prove it. As we take communion, may you remember that he has saved you for himself. And he loves you so deeply. Let's pray together. Father, I pray for the peace of God to flood the hearts of everyone in this room. I know that there's a lot of brokenness we live with in this world, from physical pain, maybe to something that is to come, an earthquake, a storm. Maybe our, our house floods and we don't have insurance. Maybe our car breaks down in the middle of nowhere. It could be a, a child gets sick. They're just vomiting everywhere and it's so inconvenient. It's at the airport. We're trying to go through security and it's the worst time. Lord, maybe our, our child whom we've placed a lot of hope on, too much hope, they flunked their test. And we just want to rail into them and say that they're not good at doing well enough. Maybe in sports, our kids aren't performing, and so we're just throwing pitches out to them time and time again, yelling at them to get better, wanting the swim meet them to increase their time so that they, we can, they can put on that first place ribbon and we can raise their hand, our hands and say, we did it. We're such good parents. Oh God, what misery we live for. We try to escape this world through all sorts of means, through our own successes and our own children's success, through, um, through our own efforts and hard work at work so that we can make enough money to have the best vacations possible and, but in the process, we're so miserable in our hearts, so empty, so lonely. Groanings, Lord. None of that will ever rid us of the groanings. But you can, and you have. That's why we come to this table. We come to look forward to that day where the earth has been made new and we walk with you and with one another with such joy freedom from sorrows forever. I pray, O oh God, that you would help us to live that way with that view right now, today, so that we can face trial and difficulties and sorrows without ever being frustrated, irritable. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.